Is it on time? It's on. Yeah. I, I didn't press start. I didn't oh. start it. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So much here. Thank you, Lord, <laughs> for the gift of our life from you again. For um, the gift of yourself in Mass this morning. For your words to us. Um, I can't remember that. Your words to us this morning, um, your presence with us through the day, um, and your presence here. We would not be doing this if it weren't for you, so you are always present here. Uh, it's important that we not overlook that, even, even though you're not physically here. Um, you are here, we wouldn't be here um, without you. Um, we offer special prayers for our faith, historically, um, internationally. Um, Toulouse, a, um, a church um, like Notre Dame, um, we live in an age that has so little care for the past, and um, all of our faith is embodied in so many ways in Europe, less here. So to lose uh, Notre Dame, God, it's a center in some ways of our faith that reminds us of our historical roots and how important they are. Be with, internationally, our whole church, and more particularly with the people in France. France is a great Catholic nation. That's what it is. Even with its divisions, it is intensely, it's either intensely faithful or anti-clerical. Um, but there's a great Catholic spirit there. Um, be with all the people. Help guide them in the rebuilding of this cathedral. Um, oversee it. Guide people. Whatever they do with it, help them to recover the past in whatever ways in which they want to step into the, our modern world, guide them, help them to look to you and what they do. Um, we offer special prayers here. Um, I hope I'm, I didn't check with you all, but um, I hope I'm doing okay here. For Tracy and um, Madison and the couple who are, who are offering to be her foster parents, for Marion uh, Perfecto, efforts to get a job. Um, for Gita and the upcoming marriage of her daughter. Um, let it, um, her hold a joy in her heart, even with struggles that all of us have in our families. Marriage is a time of celebration, but it, it often brings our whole past together, sometimes with difficulties. So be with her. Let her heart be at peace. Um, for Bob and Marcy, for Ron and Priscilla, um, um, watch over Bob, particularly. Um, offer thanks for the great courage he's shown. Um, help him to stay with it and all that goes on. Be with Ron and Priscilla in their decisions. For all of us, um, the health issues that some of us carry, help us to um, keep with you whatever whatever difficulties they present to us. And I ask especially in this work that we're doing here, um, the people that we're reading are prophetic in lots of ways. They, they 
help us to see things and feel things nobody else can. Um, enliven our minds, give light to our minds, increase the ardor of our hearts, um, steady our wills when so often we're overcome by our own weaknesses, particularly in Lent. And everything we do, help us to constantly keep moving for you, even with our failings. And we ask a blessing on all of us in these efforts, strengthen us in our faith, give us courage to take our faith to the world, help us to know we are in your kingdom um, when we participate in the Eucharist and the sacraments, and to do all that we can to make that kingdom real in our world, particularly where people don't know it. We offer these prayers, Christ, in your name, our Lord. Amen. Okay, can everybody take out Ben? After Easter, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to come up with an Easter poem. I, I know, I know um, Herbert's got some, I'll have to look. But, but remember last week we read the, that elegy um, on St. Lucy's Day. It was, a, it was a mournful poem, a heavy poem um, expressing Dunn's grief at the loss of loved ones. Um, and once again, um, we're, we're doing an elegiac poem. It's, it's, um, um, and so I thought it would be appropriate for Easter week because we're going into the Passion. I, I love it in Easter week. I love coming to the church and seeing all the statues covered. They look spectral and forbidding and frightening and dark and um, and I love Monday Thursday when the lights go out and um, ages ago this is anecdotal here personal story for a second I'll just be brief but ages ago after our conversion when we came into the church I remember um, this is back in California at, the, at our parish. Um, on Monday, Thursday, it was my first experience of being in a Catholic church where we went up and, um, or we were in the church and people were called up and their feet were washed. I was so overwhelmed, so overwhelmed by that moment to, to be a part of that, that from that night forward, every Monday, Thursday, we go home and wash feet in our family. We've done that since. We won't stop. And periodically, we've invited people to come in, to come, I mean, you know, friends or anybody. By the way, anybody's invited. Anybody's invited to our house Monday, Thursday. Gita, don't laugh at me like that. <laughs> Not this year. Huh? Oh, that's right. No, come to Jonathan's house. I'm sorry, we're having it at our son's. You're welcome anyway. <laughs> I'll straighten it out with my son. Um, um, we have friends who come, some Catholics, some, who just weep. I mean, the experience of washing somebody else's feet is so humbling. I don't know if you guys have done it, but... Um, at least once twice a Yeah. <laughs> you behave tonight, Mark. Boy, I'm... No, you too. No, be still, wait. So, God, um, people have wept. And it's, it's a wonderful, I mean, going through Triduum, you know, to where the church becomes dark and you enter into this darkness that, that physically we can experience as a part of our faith. Imagine... Protestants, for whom none of this would be true, to, to have a church darken and enter into a blackness. 
um, and be surrounded, engulfed in a blackness, and that's a part of what you experience. I'm just so grateful for it. So anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, my church was small, so it's not just the clergy that do it. They do it. We do it to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So we do do it. We do do it. It's wonderful. Now it's really. Everybody should do it at least once. You get a good dispensation for it too. <laughs> <laughs> No. Oh, it's a nice anyway, the, the, the gift. Anybody who says Easter Vigil ought to get a dispensation. <laughs> Somebody. Some, if I get him to you, will you sit on him, please, tonight? The gift to all of us in washing is humility. For me to wash Suzanne's feet, for her to wash my feet, is absolutely humbling. Um, it's a gift to us for anybody who does it, so... Anyway, um, um, so with Easter week in mind, I thought it would be appropriate to read these poems I've done. So we did St. Lucy's Day, the nocturnal. Tonight we're doing this one, okay? I'm not going to comment on I'll just let the poem speak for itself. And we'll start Dante. Okay. A Hymn to Christ, it's on page three. Doc. Do you have an extra one of these? Which? Right here? Did you take that tea off? Is it away? Leave it. A hymn to Christ at the Arthur's last going into Germany. It's not done. In what torn ship soever I embark, that ship shall be my emblem of thy ark. What seas soever swallow me, that flood shall be to me an emblem of thy blood. Though thou with clouds of anger do disguise thy face, yet through that mask I know those eyes, which though they turn away sometimes, they never will despise. I sacrifice this island unto thee, and all whom I love there, and who love me, when I had put our seas twixt them and me, put thou thy seas betwixt my sins and thee. As the tree's sap doth seek the root below, in winter, my winter now I go, where none but thee, the eternal root of true love, I may know. Nor thou nor thy religion dost control the amorousness of a harmonious soul. But thou wouldst have that love thyself, as thou art jealous, Lord, so I am jealous now. Thou lovest not till from loving more thou free my soul. Whoever gives takes liberty. Oh, if thou carest not whom I love, alas, thou lovest not me. Seal then this bill of my divorce to all on whom these fainter beams of love did fall. Marry those loves which in youth scattered be on fame, wit, hopes, false mistresses, thee. Churches are best for prayers that have least light. To see God only, I go out of sight, and to escape stormy days, I choose an everlasting night. This is when he was taking a trip and aware of death and the prospect of death and leaving home and going on a trip. And But it's also facing um, 
an inward darkness and in leaving the world and trying to put away his past and move to God. I thought you were going to read Good Friday. Oh, God, sorry. I was. Can we go back? Sorry. Yeah, I just, thinking about this, I've got to think about this. One of those beautiful poems in the, in the English language is Gerard Manley Hopkins' Wreck of the Deutschland. It's about um, five nuns who uh, were forced into exile by the, by the Falk laws in Germany when England and Germany had confiscated the properties of Catholic churches and people lost their homes, Catholics did, and it was this just horrible um, loss of franchise, liberties, imprisonment, torture. Um, it, anyway, it's, it's um, Hopkins' treatment of their sea voyage when the ship goes down. And he asks the same question the Boethi is asking. How can God allow this stuff? I may do that. I may do that. Probably will. But just no going in. It's one of the most difficult poems in the English language. So. <laughs> you know how to sell it, don't you? <laughs> okay, we're going to do it. <laughs> Good Friday. Writing westward. Thanks, Doc. God, I need help more than I can say. Good Friday. Let man's soul be a sphere, and then in this, the intelligence that moves devotion is. And as the other spheres, by being grown, subject to foreign motion, lose their own, and being by others hurried every day, scarce in a year their, national, their natural form obey, pleasure or business, so our souls admit for their first mover and our world by it. That is to the extent that we let ourselves get caught up by the world, that becomes our first mover when our first mover, you know, certainly from Dante, should be God. Hence is it that I'm carried towards the west this day when my soul's form bends to the east against what it should do. There I should see a sun by rising set, and by that setting endless day beget. But that Christ on his cross did rise and fall, sin had eternally benighted all, we'd still be in sin. Yet dare I almost be glad, I do not see that spectacle of too much weight for me, who sees God's face that is self-like must die. What a death were it then to see God die? It made his own lieutenant nature shrink, because you know the heavens cracked and the sun was eclipsed and nature seemed to go against itself for a moment in recognition of that moment. It made his own lieutenant nature shrink, it made his footstool crack and the sun wink. Could I behold those hands which span the poles and tune all spheres at once, pierced with those holes? Could I behold that endless height which is zenith to us and our antipodes humbled below us, or that blood which is the seat of all our souls, if not of his, made dirt of dust, or that flesh which was worn by God for his apparel, ragged and torn? If on these things I durst not look, durst I on his distressed mother cast mine eye, who was God's partner here, and furnished thus half of that sacrifice which ransomed us? Though these things as I ride be from mine eye, 
they're present yet unto my memory. For that looks towards them, and thou lookest towards me, O Savior, as thou hangest upon the tree. <coughs> I turn my back to thee, but to receive corrections till thy mercies did thee leave. O think me worth thine anger, punish me. Burn off my rust and my deformity. Restore thine image so much by thy grace that thou mayest know me, and I'll turn my face. A little bit strange doing Dante's Paradiso going into Holy Week, but here we go. A couple of things to start tonight. Um, I want to pick up a couple of things from last week because I thought the discussion was good. I wasn't prepared for it, but, but I'm glad for uh, particularly Chester and Mark's question. So I want I want to try to I want to go back and try to just review them briefly and and hopefully bring some more light to them. Um, and I think, Chester, I'm thinking particularly of you and Mark, if, if you have questions, I'll be glad to take them. But I want to try to be as brief as I can tonight, okay, because I want to go forward. But I, but I, I, I thought your, I mean, your questions were, both of you, um, really important. So I, I don't want to, I don't want to not try to give some response to them. First, literature is prophecy. Those of you who have been here for a long time have heard me. I mean, when we started, just a quick review, because some of you weren't there when we started. Very quick review. What I did in the very first meeting is I set up a prophecy chart. If you, those of you who started remember, on one side I put Revelation, going back to Moses and Abraham and um, Abraham and Moses, and, and and just in a scheme. And if you don't have it, let me know and I'll bring one of those. Just, it's very brief. It's just a schematic drawing showing the the line of prophecy that led to Christ, very briefly, to some of the major prophets, beginning with Abraham going to Moses. And on the other side, I lined up the epic, because we went back, to, at the very beginning, we went back to the epics, because they had a number of things in common. If you read the Old Testament, it's really interesting to watch God call out a people. He calls Abraham out, remember, to leave his home, to be the father of a nation. And... Um, what, what, what happens is that um, tr through that line in the history that covers it, we're watching God form a people, call a people out, the 12, the 12 tribes of, of Israel and the kingdom. So what's at the heart of the Old Testament is the founding of a people. God calling a particular people out to do his will, and we know even in the Old Testament that it has a universal end. It's not supposed to stay with the Jews. It's supposed to go to all nations. And that it's preparing, that's part of the, God's plan in preparation for the Messiah. The, the king who's being prepared for in that action, okay? The amazing thing, if you put it together, which is what we were doing, is line up the epics. So Abraham, if I remember, goes back to 1400, something like that, I think. Maybe, maybe earlier, and then I can't remember where Moses comes in, but you can watch the historical development. If you line that up, an interesting thing's going on absolutely independently of the prophetic tradition. You've got um, an epic tradition somewhere in existence, somehow, and Homer picks it up. Before Homer, it's oral 
we don't have works before him. He's, he, he doesn't write. This, God, this is stunning. This is a man who knows the Iliad and the Odyssey by heart. He has no book. He, this is the, the, what in the ancient days were called the vates, the seer, the seer, the vates, the wise man. The poet was the wise man, the vates, the seer. As you know, we know from the Odyssey, Odysseus sits down and tells this story. So does Demodocus. We know from those stories that Homer was like that. He sat down in the community, he would tell these stories, and people would gather around him. Poetry was seen as the, as the source of wisdom and the source of a community's health. He embodied a view of the whole community. The most important things were in his work. So Homer would sit down and tell the whole of the Odyssey. And he'd tell the whole of, the, I mean, sorry, the Iliad, and then the Odyssey. He was, he's, this is 9th century, sometime around the 6th century, Greek writes them down. So they finally get a written form. But the interesting thing is that when you watch the, the Iliad, the Odyssey, and then Virgil in the Aeneid, which Virgil is living close to the time of Christ, it's amazing to see that the central theme of the, all, all the ancient epics is a founding, a refounding. God calling out somebody to take on a divinely appointed task to answer a disorder and refound a people. That's the central theme of every great epic. Fellowship of the Ring? Any different? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. There's a disorder. There's something wrong with people. They, they're, the, the way they're living is out of tune with God. Some guy comes into this order and he does something that stirs up all sorts of problems, Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, battles all around them, fighting deaths, um, but a new order. And some great crimes are answered and become the source of a new spirit entering the world. The poet is the one who sees that, okay? So, and, and interestingly in all those ancient epics, you all know this now, those of you who've done it, every one of those ancient epics ends with what the church calls a parousia, that's, that's independent of the, of the natural world. That's the church's word to describe the second coming. A king will come in power and glory and judgment. And when he does, there's going to be a reckoning. That's our description of Christ. He's not this nice <laughs> buddy. Um, it's a king bringing judgment. That's our church's word. Every one of those, every single one of those epics ends with a Perusia. The, the return of the king, the return of the king. Achilles returns, Odysseus returns, Aeneas returns. What's the guy's name in fellowship? You know from the story in the way you movie, you know the king comes back Aragorn? and... Aragorn? Yeah, I think, isn't it? Is return of the king, return of the king. Um, Tolkien didn't pull it out of air. He's writing in a tradition doing that. He knows exactly where he is. What is it, what is it about these men who are able to look at the disorders of a their own period and show those, expose them for what they are and also offer an answer? Homer and the Iliad, Homer and the Odyssey, Virgil and the Aeneid, Dante and the Divine Comedy. You can go on and on and on up into our day. So the whole purpose of this work that we're doing together is to as you know, to see if we can find Christ where ordinarily we don't see him. And 
the works that I've chosen all have that aspect. It, the purpose of them is to see God's working in the world, very often where we don't see him. He was, God only went to work after Christ came? <laughs> Absolutely not. We know that from the Old Testament. He never stopped looking out for his people, ever. They constantly turned from him. Did he ever leave them? No. God has never not looked out for his creatures. We are his children. So he's always been at work. Do we see it? No. So the whole purpose of this was to show that in, in great works of art, not all of them, not all poets are great poets, but in the really great ones, they, for whatever gifts, they, they've had the ability to reveal things to us that lesser poets can. So there's been this prophetic element um, present and at work, and, and the argument, the claim that I've been making is, is these poets are working on this side of Revelation, the natural side. The prophets were chosen by God. They're, they're directly revealing his word. We know the importance of prophecy, scripture, because um, we know from scripture that if we were left to ourselves, we couldn't, it would be a much harder time to be saved. God is offering help by showing things that ordinarily we can't see. That's the function of prophets. Yeah? He, he's sending them to help us, to help us see things. Why were the prophets stoned and hated? Because <coughs> they were always showing the Israelites things they didn't want to see. Constantly stoned. I mean, some of the parables, you know, about um, the stewards who were killed and, who's, and when they send the sun, what's going to happen. And so the tendency of people has been always to reject God. The amazing thing about the great poets is that on the natural order, they have these rare gifts and are lining up with the prophets. Um, how much they're inspired by God, I don't want to even begin to try to answer that. All I know is they're extraordinary and what they offer us is a, an extraordinary gift. So that's been the thrust of our work today. So the prophetic element has always been here. Um, that we know that there are some people more gifted than others. Beethoven and Bach are, you know, Mozart are extraordinary musicians. Some poets are greater than others. Some people have an ability to see. The amazing thing about music and poetry is that it can help us feel and see things other arts can't. Music does that in an amazing, in an amazing way. So does, so does literature, poetry. And one of the claims that I've been making about poetry, you know this from our work together, is there's a musical component to literature. It helps us to feel what we see. Because with images we can see, so I think it appeals more directly to our intellects, but it always involves our emotions, our heart, because what goes on makes us to feel things. That's a good. It helps to see and feel things we wouldn't otherwise. So, um, one last comment before I go to the next thing. The really great poets separate themselves off from others in, in a number of ways, but I can, I can just name one here. Like, like St. Thomas, the really great poets are those who, who pull together rich traditions that help inform their vision. So one of the things that they can do is help us, make, help us become aware of the way we stand in our world and the dangers that that world presents to us. One of the major sources of inspiration for that kind of vision is Plato's cave. A poet who has that in him, 
is going to be able to see more than somebody who doesn't, right? Because you know the allegory. We've gone over it a number of times now. Plato's at, this is a philosopher, not a poet. According to Plato, all of us are in caves. Um, we're, we're looking at things in the world and taking them as reality because we live so much in our bodies, we take it as being real. And Plato's making clear that there's something beyond the sensible world, that world that we see with our bodies, that we're only seeing the appearances of things. So we get very arrogant and think, I know this. But as a matter of fact, there are metaphysical things, spiritual dimensions at work that we don't see very well. Plato made that clear. Every great artist makes that clear. If, if you go back to your high school times I'm, times, I'm sure you've heard teachers talk about the theme of appearance versus reality. You know, they lined it up like that. Every great writer is working off of appearances, the way things appear in the world and, and something else that's going on behind the scenes. The great value is they help us to see there are levels of meaning, depths of meaning. And through literature, we're able to dis to hold on to the literal surface, what's in front of us, and see there's more going on than often we see. So they're prophetic in that sense. They, they help us to go to depths. They help us to see and feel the depths of things. Okay. Dante's in an extraordinary, this is, I don't know what you want to call it, a great irony, a great gift. Dante's in an extraordinary position, so is Shakespeare, but we're doing Dante right now, because he lived at the, at at the time when the, when the Christian Middle Ages were collapsing, the Copernican view is off the horizon and we're entering into modernity, okay? And one of the great ironies for us is that Dante's writing this poem um, at a time that coincides with the founding of the first commercial republic in the West of the modern kind. If you go back to the ancient world, Rome was the great ancient republic. Florence, the, the, all, all the educated towns would have done that. Athens and Rome were the two great models for the whole world. But what was going on in Florence was entirely new. They were basing this, this republic. They were breaking from the church and the empire, the emperor, the state, and claiming an independence so people would be forced to do one another. They'd have to choose. So free will came more into the picture um, at that point. That's, that's the beginning of the modern commercial republic. It's the prototype for us. There's nothing going on in the Commedia that doesn't look at a commercial republic. And we've seen people are killing each other, they're at war, they're selfish, they're greedy, they're motivated by getting ahead, putting other people down. Their primary interest is financial, greed, avarice. Those are the motiv motivating elements behind the commercial regime. Um, does Dante leave us out to dry? No, he does not. He's showing us that there's a good, there's a good if we will only see it. If we learn to, for him, I'm here to cure my blindness, to learn to see things more truly. So I'm, so I'm not in Plato's cave, so I'm not just subject to these things. So it's prophetic in a number of ways. In a major way, it's prophetic because it's, 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 it's the, it's the prototype of our own regime. We're learning to see ourselves more clearly, even though he wrote it 1300. What's that? 600, six centuries ago. I can say this as a person who spent my life in literature. To me, it's as contemporary. This is, you're going to probably laugh, but it's, it's contemporary to me as the Iliad. Those of you who've done the Iliad with I mean, you know that I think the Iliad is one of the most perfect expressions of American capitalism. Everybody's killing each other for the booty they can get. What's more American than that? And that's Homer in 800 BC. 
There's not anybody in the Iliad who isn't killing somebody else in order to get ahead, to get their booty, to have their wealth, to have their position. And at the top of that list of possessions, women. The, the Odyssey, um, women getting off free? No, because the, one of the great dangers of the Odyssey is the way women use men. That's at the beginning of our civilization. Those two books, the Iliad and the Odyssey, in my mind, line up with Genesis. They, they, they are an extraordinary gift to us because they show how, what a great glory the human person is and the great dangers he is to himself and others. So there's this prophetic element. It's been here all along. And um, I, um, there's that aspect of Dante that it, uh, makes it worth reading him now. Second element. Um, there's two things here I want to try to pull together. Last time I was, I was pointing out that what Dante is showing, and to me in an amazing way, that as we move up to Paradiso, we're seeing that those inclinations in a human being that led to that individual's sins are now a glory. Um, and I want to come back to that because that to me is, I think, one of the most important things in Catholicism that I don't think the modern world can appreciate. I'm not, I think most Catholics don't even see it. Um, and I want to relate it to this other theme that you know that as souls move up purgatory, they're overcoming that subject-object dichotomy. They're learning to become whole again, to recover a virtue. And as they do, their sight clarifies, and as their sight clarifies and deepens, so does their love. So they learn to become more one with another. Okay. Now, let me just briefly try to, to take a minute with each to clarify them and then take a minute for questions if anybody hasn't, and then I want to go on. But So, subject object. One of the effects of the fall, once we turn our love away from God, is to turn our love towards ourselves. A self-love enters the world that's um, that's a sign of our fall. And one of the effects of that is that we use other people. Men do it, so do women. We all do. There's a selfishness in, in ourselves. We want to use other people. To practice virtue is to help us get out of that. In a marriage, the difficulty is this. I mean, think about this. If we're, and you know the church calls us to this. In a marriage, we're called to be one flesh. That's the church's language. We're called to be one, one flesh. Think about the risks involved. I'm really serious about it. I don't want to get into this. This is really a time for a psychologist meeting or something. I don't want to go there, but think about it. When you get married, if, if, if we're called to overcome that subject-object dichotomy, it means entering into the other person and standing with that person as that person is a subject, let's say, to herself. I'm a man. And Susanna and I are married. To be married to her means standing in herself exactly as she does. So I'm no longer looking at her as an object. I enter into her with all of her great gifts and all of her disorders. And she's doing the same with me. I can understand why I feel bad for her. <laughs> well, I'm not going to do that. Now, hold on. It's not a balance. Because we know that some people have greater disorders than others. I'm, that's a physics term. But we are called to virtue. 
That means we're not meant to stay there, whatever those disorders are. We're meant to help each other come out. If we stay in those disorders, it means how well did we risk entering into the subject of another, to see that person, to stand with that person as a subject, not an object. Is that clear? So to become one with another person means to stand with that other as another self, another subject, no longer an object. With all of the risk, the dangers, the crosses, the wounds that are involved in that. How many marriages today are, are, we can define as marriages of convenience? People are in a marriage not to do that because it's too risky. It's too, it's too painful. There's a cross. I've said this before. Honeymoons, you're so happy. And we did this when we did the, um, the siren episode. You think you love somebody and six months into your marriage? We heard a story today about a man who tried to plant a bomb on his wife's front lawn. Um, what happens when you start realizing, um, do I deserve this? Do I have to put up with this? You know, that you suddenly have to bear another person's sin? Why? Why should I have to do that? In our, you know, in our pride. I hope I'm not just speaking for myself here. Um, anyway, you know what I'm talking about. That entering into marriage, is it, I mean, it drives me nuts. I, I want to go up and talk to people before they get married. Entering into marriage is a cross. It's a cross. And, and how often do both couples enter into it? Truly. And the difficulty is when they don't. So this, so the whole, remember, the, the, what Dante's showing us in this movement up purgatory is not just, I'm being healed. It's not self-centered. Every individual is a part of a larger community. That person is learning to become one with everybody else. When you enter, we've, I've gone over and over this, when you enter to heaven, you don't lose any of your individuality, but suddenly you are a part of every other, per, one with every other person there, because God is. You're all indwelling with each other. How amazing is that? Who has a notion of that today? If that was on our minds and our marriages moving that way, I would think we would have a help. It wouldn't look so dark. You know, it would be a help. Because there's, great, there's this great glory. That's what we hope for. That's, hope is a supernatural virtue. Virgil doesn't have it. It's, a supernatural, it's from God. Faith, supernatural virtue. Hope isn't real until we have no reason for hoping. It means we've still got things the way we want them. Hope becomes real when we have no reason to hope anymore. Then we enter into a Christian world. Same thing with faith. Same thing with love. If you're loving for a reason, you're probably enabling in some way. We're supposed to love when we have no reason to love because it's a supernatural condition. That's why it's a cross. But to go back, remember the, the, what Dante's showing us is that, is that the movement of purgatory is a recovery of virtues. Mary's behind, Mary is behind every single one of them. Humility, meekness, it goes on, courage, endurance. So whatever we do in life, we're supposed to be working hard at becoming more virtuous. Trusting that when we do, we become united with another person because love, love by nature is unitive. It brings, it makes us one with another. We enter into that other one's self. Let's say without, you didn't know it when you got married, but your husband is an alcoholic. And you've got to deal with that. 
he's not meant to stay there. Or your wife has an affair. I mean, I, you know, I don't, I'm feeling a bit, I don't want, I'm trying to make it as, probably shouldn't make it as bad. But at some point you have to, you know, you have to, what, what, wait, by the way, one of the beauties of Shakespeare's plays, Shakespeare never lets anybody off easy. Ever. Ever. If you watch the women, because the women are typically the leaders of the comedies, the, the women have to deal with all these stupid men, but, and they've all got these tasks. You know, it's not like things are hunky-dory and, you know, piece of cake. <laughs> they've got their work for, but, but what they do brings them to a point where all of Shakespeare's plays end in a marriage. Now they're ready to go on together. The one play in which a male is, takes that lead, Taming of the Shrew, most women don't even want to look at. I think that's a loss because there's something to be said for what Petruccio does with Kate in that. You know, but, but we're not meant to be there. We're supposed to work, help, in patience, in humility, in love, to help us get better, all of us. That's what Dante's doing. The whole movement of, the whole action of purgatory is to help bring us there. What's in paradise afterwards, gratitude, joy, wonder. It's a state of forgiveness. So we entered into that world. Remember, in purgatory, the debt is paid. You don't carry that debt forward. What's carried forward after purgatory is a glory. And the stunning thing, at least for me, when I watch these souls, is the very things that made them sin, whatever they're, because all, the, I, think, I think most moderns will never say this, so often the things that, um, that, that differentiate us from one from another, the gifts that each one of us has, those same gifts that the world prizes, that, that wants to feed be, because it makes them more successful, those very gifts are so often the sources of our worst faults. Take a basketball player who's a great basketball player. Try to picture a bat. It makes me. I, I, I have to strain myself over, and the no doctors give me these nasty looks. Think about a great basketball player. How many basketball players are free of their egos? And if, they ever, if their egos happen to be particularly large, what kind of people would they be? Would they be to live with? I can't even imagine. Our gifts very often are, are the source of some of our worst sins. So for me, it's no accident. What, and and um, what Dante's showing us to me is so true to life. One more thing, and then I'll stop and, and um, get to the text. One last thing. I think one of the reasons people have such a hard time seeing what Dante's doing in our world is because of Calvin's influence. Because the Protestant view of the fall is we're corrupted, we're depraved. That's universal in the Protestant world. All the major Protestant reformers believe that the consequences of the fall were complete. Man's depraved. Lucifer, Wycliffe, Huss, all of them. You know from Dante that that's not true. And this is so important, so important. For Dante, remember in, in hell, or in a purgatory, in halfway, Virgil has that discourse on love, and he says, love is the cause of all good in the world. It's also the cause of all evil. The modern mind cannot wrap itself around that thought. God made nothing evil. He made nothing bad. 
we bring into the world evil by loving the wrong thing for a person. You remember that the lower, the lower sins, this is really interesting, the lower sins were love of excelling over somebody, pride, wanting to get ahead even if it hurts somebody, wanting somebody to lose something because we don't have it, envy, wrath, wanting to hurt somebody because they hurt us. So, interesting, stop and think about this. If we remember that the source of all sins is love, and those sins are purified, then those very things that we had to struggle with, that were so often our crosses, become the means of a glory. That love is cleansed. So the very things that we hate, you know, we, we don't want to, are often the means by which God helps us to deepen our sense of ourselves. Think about Peter and his glory, what he can do, the patience that we're asked to have when we're dealing with our sins. If you begin with a, with a Protestant, if a Calvinistic view, if man's corrupt, it's hard to get from that view to watching Cunis that go, I forgive myself, you know, and, then, and she's there as a glory, she's likened to a pearl or, you know, all the other people in, in the opening s- stages of the... Uh, because their inclination is to condemn them. God, these sins, are you kidding? What Cunis hor- have four husbands and how many lovers? Um, I wish I could sin like that. I don't. <laughs> Time out. Oh, uh, there you go. That was supposed to be a joke. Uh, <laughs> welcome to the last yeah, all right. No firearms. Not anymore. <laughs> Can I get a ride home with anybody? <laughs> We got a spare room. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God! (laughs) I need to sleep. Maybe you should just continue on. I told you the story of two women who were sitting next to each other. I think a couple of years ago when we were doing this, and they was talking about Cunisa, who's in heaven. Remember that? I'm going to go. That's where we're going to start. So I do forgive myself, and and the two of them looked at each other like it was. An opening. <laughs> they're both married. I mean, they were, they were having fun with it. Just anyway. Anyway, is that clear? This whole thing about subject-object and why, what Dante's doing in those early stages of the Paradiso, when he's working with the Contrapasso. Remember, that's been with us all. Dante's the great doctor. I mean, you could call him a doctor. He sees so clearly the relationship between effects and causes. The way a doctor would. You go in, you've got these symptoms, say, here are the effects the doctor's supposed to diagnose. And you know doctors get them wrong all the time. Dante's doing that with our spiritual life. He's looking at the effects and understanding the nature of the sin by them. So when we're in the lustful or the avaricious in hell or in in the purgatory, we're learning to see the nature of sin and its effects, what, what, what they do to us. And that carries through in the Paradiso. He's showing us the effect of the sin, except now the, the sins are no longer present. Whatever was behind the sin, that, pati- that love that was, pe- the gifts peculiar to that person are now a glory. Um, anyway, I just wanted to, to quickly go over some of the, I'll, I'll stop for a few minutes for any of you who want to,
but I do not want to take time. I really, I really want to get on because there's more to learn, and and my hope is that you always go back and relook at these things. Once you've seen the whole, it's going to help you look at parts of it a little bit better. So, but any any brief questions or. Hmm? I have a simple question. Mm -hmm. Is there any earlier literature than the Odyssey and the Iliad? I think Gilgamesh is earlier, Mark. I can't remember the date of Sorry? Is there anything else? Not in the Western world. I mean, and the, the, I think Gilgamesh comes earlier, but one of the interesting things for me, Homer really is a founder of Western civilization in just remarkable ways. If you look at Gilgamesh and you put it up to the Iliad and the Odyssey, it's so abstract. You're in an Eastern world dealing with that. When you look at the hero, the hero's an abstraction. You can't live in the Iliad and the Odyssey without feeling whoever that poet was, was absolutely enmeshed in concrete realities. He's showing us blood splashing, one guy getting, I mean, we're, we're there concretely in a battle. So what happens in the Iliad and the Odyssey is that that poet is fully in our world. The world is available to our senses. Somebody hits you, cuts you, you're cut. We're in that world. But he also sees something behind it. The order of the gods. Yeah, and Gilgamesh does not do that. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not aware of any literature to be concerned with before Homer. That's why I really, I think of him as, the Iliad and the Odyssey really belong with Genesis. That, they are the founding works of Western civilization, and no other civilization has them. To, to dismiss dead white men, and, and if you take those works away and put us in the, in the third world countries that don't have them, we're going back to a barbaric world. We're, t we're, we're taking away the source of the greatest things in our city, even if we ruin them by our, by our stupidity and our pride the way we do. Those Genesis, the Bible, you know, the great poets, they've given us something you just, that are not given another culture. It's, it's a little bit like saying, why, why, did Christ, why did God pick out the Jews? I mean, what, what we have through Judaism in our past, no other civilization has. You want to dismiss that because it's by dead white males? Take that away. And we're back in a barbaric world. I mean, for whatever mysteries, why he chose, the, you know, the Israelites, or why, why Homer, why, why did this moment happen in Greek philosophy when the pre-Socratics and then Plato and, and uh, Socrates and Aristotle? Why in the West? Something has been going on in the West that showed something about our human nature that no other civilization has come close to knowing. So Bob, you're saying that Eastern civilizations and African civilizations do not have anything like this. Mm -hmm. Well, they have, they did a lot by verbal. Okay. And they've got a lot of, I mean, if you look at the Bhagavad Gita, and if you look at the Indian literature or African literature, or the, the myths, the stories, you, I mean, all you can say is what a rich imagination, what a rich culture. But this combination of something, here, if you look at Aristotle and Plato, it's amazing because so much of what they showed is compatible with what Christ showed. When you look at all the other ancient civilizations, particularly in the East, there's a Manichaean, a dualism that's present that, that, doesn't, that doesn't quite see the richness of those two dimensions brought together. 
It's not to, it's not to say there isn't a great literature in China, you know, Africa, <coughs> India. Um, but something amazing happened in the West. Who can explain it? It's just, it's amazing, truly amazing. Anyway, let's, um, if, if there's no questions, I wanna, I wanna get to our text. We've, we've been given, <laughs> this is a little bit, what does Christ say? To those who've been given more. We're not supposed to take this stuff for granted. It's not like, oh, we're lucky. Yeah, but it carries a price. We're supposed to, we're supposed to do more too. Um, supposed to change the way we live. <clears throat> okay, let's. No more. No questions. No. Let's go back to Kinesia um, and go forward. I want to get to um, Dante's grandfather. Can. try to line this up. I'm, I'm not sure that I can do as good as I would like to do, but this is in the hopes of answering some of the questions that you guys have. Remember, Dante has come to the level of Venus. He and Beatrice have risen into the, the sphere of Venus, the planet of Venus. This is the planet most associated with warmth of passion, if I can put it that way. I'm trying to be good here. This is four husbands and However many lovers. Boy, I like her. <laughs> it's just that she's here. <laughs> well, I love all these souls. I mean, but she's been... <laughs> anyway, I'm in enough trouble. So um, 440. 440. By now the life within that holy light was turned to face once more the sun that fills it as to the good sufficient for all things. Remember this phrase. Bonum es diffusivium sui. Goodness is diffusive of itself. God's goodness is suffused, is spread everywhere, penetrates the whole universe, and it returns to him. All, all goodness returns. It's meant to go back. It's a unitive. Um, by now the life within that holy light was turned to face once more, the sun that fills it as to the good sufficient for all things. Ah, souls deceived, devoid of piety, who turn your hearts away from the true good. What happens when we turn from God's good? We all know I mean, it's just, it's, when you look back at, in retrospect, you think, geez, how stupid. <laughs> um, but here's where I wanted to go. All souls deceived, devoid of piety, turn your hearts away from the true good, raising your haughty heads towards empty things. Uh, then another of those radiant lights drew near to me. Its eagerness to please was shining through the splendor of its glow. Top of 441. Whereat the light of that still unknown soul out of its depths from which it sang now answered like one whose joy is giving joyously. I'm going to take a stab here. And I'm going to ask Doc if she'll say, if you can do it just briefly, what we were talking about in the card. Doc, wait just one second. It's interesting that Cunisa is going to say, 441, both he and I were born from the same root. 
Cuniza was my name, and I shine here, for I was overcome by this star's light. But gladly I myself forgive in me what caused my fate. It grieves me not at all, which might seem strange indeed to earthly minds. Remember, transhumanized. We have entered into a different sphere. I'm going to come to this again and again tonight. We cannot, we cannot look at this stuff the way we look at earthly things, because we're not there anymore. But here's the interesting. Was shining through this, drew near to me its eagerness to please. 440, 441, like one whose joy is giving joyously. It seems to me the inclination in Tunisia that's partly behind her lusts, or were, is this desire for pleasure in wanting to please herself and to please another. Because we've got these lines, so this, I think this is part of the, the uh, contrapasso, the, the lineup with the inclination. Because remember, every soul, each one of us, is inclined to a different, we've got different abilities, different inclinations. We're inclined to different sins. Um, some are more intellectual, some are more physical. You know, some are with physical objects. I mean, it's just, it's a different. You want to do your example of the child that you were, can you do that briefly? Huh? You can do it. You do it, Doc. So I was trying to think of an example of um, of an inclination. Can you speak up, Doc? I was trying to think of an example of an inclination um, that would lead to something like lust. So lust is a sin. Um, the point, remember, is that behind that lust is a good love. So We're not, we don't, we don't start with depravity. What's behind that is a, is a good. If we're thinking otherwise, we're not in the right world. There is no evil in our world. It started as a good. It's a, it's a pleasure to, to give a pleasure to somebody else, to receive a pleasure yourself. That's not a bad. So I was trying to think what would be behind lust. So it's pleasure in physical things. Um, and if you go back to look at, so lust is, lust is a sin, and that's what, and it's in the adult world. But you go back to a child who is taking delight in running in and out of the waves at the beach, you know, feeling the sand in their feet, um, the wind and the sun, and they're just loving the physical sensations that they're experiencing. There's nothing sinful about that. That's, that's a, an innocent physical delight. 25 years later, it's probably not so innocent, um, and the love has gone wrong. Um, but the initial, the initial gift of pleasure in that that the child was given is a gift, not a sin. The reason this is so important for me, let's think you look at the reason this is so important. This is so important to me. When I, what it does to our psyche, all of us. Imagine a Protestant dealing with this, a fundamentalist, who, who believe that we're depraved. <coughs> Their understanding of that moment is there's a depravity there initially that can only be answered ultimately by faith in Christ. But what they begin with is a depravity. So things that Calvin hated the human body. The tendency, once you start hating the body, is to look at sex as if it's a bad thing. Because you're starting with a notion of depravity. We're not in this world. God made nothing bad. That means 
a complete alteration of the way we look at the world, what we begin with. And you know, I'm assuming most of you, know how easy it is to slip into condemnations. Because your, your assumption, whether you're looking at it, is gravity, sin. The, the word in Faulkner that I loved when we did that, the word abomination. God, I hate that word. Abomination. That readiness to condemn because your assumption is there's sin. If you don't get Christ, you know, you're stuck in that world. Um, what Dante's showing us, reminding us is, it's, I thought Suzanne's example was a good one, is that isn't so. Our loves get disordered. They're the cause of sin. Something happens. We don't get the help we need, or we get encouraged in the wrong way. And what starts in innocence, Dante even said that in the member in the middle of the purgatory, what starts in innocence, if it's not curbed, Ballard, you go ahead. Well, to me, I don't think joint nature, God's nature is lustful. That's not. That isn't what she was saying. No, I know that. I know that because children of an innocence. What she's trying to do is. It'll, is, it'll build beyond what would be. She natural. wants to go back to, to make it clear that we didn't start in depravity. We right. start with a good, something happens. But I'm, my re- the, the reason I still enjoy her. Or example is set that against somebody who begins with the assumption that you start with depravity. Right. Then you have a harder time looking at Cunizan when she says, I forgive myself, because you don't even see that, that what she began with was actually a good. It was meant to end in a glory. That attitude, that attitude is so pervasive in our culture. I think in most of us, we don't we don't have a, enough of a sense of the goodness of things in a light or a sense of the responsibility we have to try to curb them, to help. And, and if we do, the danger in our world is condemning. I mean, we, we should be working really to take vir- laws seriously, very seriously, but in the right spirit. Mercy, patience. How easy is that? Yeah, I know I'm speaking for myself here, but anyway, Mark, yeah. I know it's a simplistic thing that I'm missing when I read this. What page are you on? 441. But gladly I myself would give in me what cost my faith. It's almost a, it's almost saying as if she forgave herself and that's enough. God doesn't need to be there. No. That's what am I missing? She probably Good. went to purgatory. You don't know. Well, she the was. fact that she's you're correct, but it just what am I missing when she's to me that is so wrong to say. Uh, yeah. Did you have? I mean, if, well. Just that um, it's been made clear earlier on that um, everybody in heaven is in perfect, their wills are in perfect accord with, with God. Mm-hmm. So God initiates the forgiveness through purgatory. But Once it's, almost, you're, it's almost a prideful thing she's it, saying. Though. No, that's what I'm missing something. Yeah, here, the, what you're missing is what you're doing is taking the con. Isolating the context when you have information everywhere around you. I mean, because it's been, you can't miss it. It's over and over and over again. Over and over and over again, people in this kingdom, God's goodness, it spreads, it's here, it's there, we're glad it's. And we know from the top of the purgatories, um, and remember, n- nobody had to say, now you're free. There, God's, God gave us free wills. Augustine, love and do what you will. You can look at that pridefully and think she's claiming, but in one sense, it's consistent with everything we've been reading. She's, she's not saying this. There, I mean, the, the obvious answer to your thing is there is no pride here any longer. There is none. 
To read it that way is to misread it. We know from hundreds of things that have been surrounding this, the diffusiveness, the, the, the line that I just even read a moment ago, also is deceived, but now the light within the holy light was turned to face once more. Everything in, in paradise is in love, in humility, in wonder, in gratitude. There's no way to read that except to misread it yourself. It seems out of place to me. That line just seems out of place. Yeah, but it's not. And remember, it, we've, we've been given principles. Twice in the Purgatorio, um, who was it when Stacy when said, we talked about this, somebody raised that question in this class. Or was it, um, when, who was it, God. They're not waiting for somebody to release them. When the will is good, it acts freely because that's what God wanted. For the will to be free. The dark way to put this is we, we know in the world, so long as our desires are attached to something, we call it an addiction, a vice, that it's hard for us to resist a weak sex, food, things, whatever it is, wrath, envy. So long as we're there, the will's not free, it's trapped. But God made us with a free, that's the great gift. He made us free, that's the way he wants us. The, this God here is not a deus machina. He's not pulling strings. Um, God made us in his image. He's free. He wants us to be in that freedom ourselves. So when she says that, what she's showing is the autonomy, and, and particularly in light of all the other things that have said about it, the good, the diffusiveness, the love of God, doing his will, all of that. You know, it's been practically in every canto. Um, over on 442, it's one of Dante's condemnation of the corruption. I don't want to, I don't want to go into it, but I just don't want you to look past this stuff. And where Cognano and the Sealy join, a man lords over with lofty head for whom the net's already been. Um, she's prophesying a doom that's going to come to some guy because he's acting a tyrant. And we're told about this um, bishop who sold off these people. So Dante's continuing to attack the corruptions of the church. You can almost not read a canto without being reminded of these, particularly in Boniface, who's the Pope. I mean, in his mind, and there's this beautiful line, we'll come to it in a minute, um, where he makes this distinction between the papacy and the person occupying it. So I, don't, I hope we can get to tonight. 444. Um, Remember, he's talking with Fouquet now, who was also a passionate lover. But we do not repent, we smile instead, not at the, sun, at the sin, this does not come to mind, but at the power that order and provides. They are absolutely one with God. This is not proudful. They are glad, they're gracious. The sin doesn't weigh them in, it's gone. It's crucial to see that. These people are in joy. This is a state of forgiveness, they're forgiven. Sins are gone. Even if they remember and they care. No guilt, no shame there. But now that I may fully satisfy all of your wishes born within this sphere, let me proceed. It is your wish to know who this one is within the luminance. Go on over 445. To this sphere where the shadow of the earth, here we are. So all of these, the, everything up through the sun presents a kind of knowledge that's in the shadow of the earth. The shadow of the earth. To this sphere where the shadow of your earth comes to an end, 
She was the first to rise among the souls redeemed in Christ's great triumph. It was most fitting that she be received and left in one of our great spheres at a palm of that great victory won by those two palms, for it was Rahab who made possible Joshua's first glory into the Holy Land. When Christ um, was harrowed hell in the Great Passion, traditionally it's been the understanding of the churches that the, the patriarchs, the were released, they were freed from hell, that he overcame death and sin, and, and Rahab was included among them, and she's in this sphere, because if you remember your Bible, she was a prostitute, she was a whore. But she, so here again, is she holding on to her sense of having been a whore her life? No. In fact, here she is in this great glory, because she's the one, if you know your history, she's the one that helped the Jews into the Promised Land. Um, um, but here again, this denunciation. Um, for it was Rahab who made possible Joshua's first glory into the Holy Land, which seems no matter, no little matter to the Pope. That is, again, the critique. Boniface seems so preoccupied with wealth, the corruptions of the church, that he is not helping recover lands that were Christians up until that time in the Holy Land. Your city, which was planted by the one, the first to turn against his maker's power, and whose fierce envy brought the world such woe. What he's saying, it, this is the strongest condemnation of Dante in the whole of the, the community. Who is the, who is the ruler? Who is the founder of Florence? Your city, which was planted by the one, the first to turn against his maker's power, whose fierce envy brought the world such woe. He was envious that Adam and Eve had been created. By the way, that's from Milton. So who's he talking about? Who's the founder of Florence? Lucifer. Same. This is what Dante thinks of Florence at this time. It's just it's so given to corruptions. Creates and circulates the wicked flower that turns the shepherds into ravening wolves. That is the priests. Should be shepherds. And breaks the fold and lets the lambs run wild. The gospel, this is one of his severest condemnations of Florence um, and the corruptions in the church. The gospel and the fathers of the church like gathering dust and canon law alone is studied as the margins testify. The pope and cardinals heed nothing else. Their thoughts do not go out to Nazareth where Gabriel once opened wide his wings. They should be protective of um, the Christians there. But Vatican in every sacred place in Rome which marked the burial ground of saints who fought in Peter's army to the death shall soon be free of this adultery. What's the great crime on earth? Why is it mentioned here? Because this is the planet of lust. He's commenting on the overwhelming presence of that lust in the church. And you know how that pervasive that is in the Bible, the whore of Babylon. And, you know, that the, that the church right now is corrupted by its lust, that it's adulterous, that it's forsaken God, that it, it's the bride forsaking the bridegroom. So the this denunciation here is as strong as it gets for Dante. Um, 448. This is amazing. They're rising from Venus into the sun. This is stunning. Stunning. Um, and I was in the sun. No more. No. This is stunning. Tracy, this goes. I think it was your question. I was in the sun no more aware of my ascent than one can be aware of how a thought will come before it comes. We are beyond the shadow of the earth. 
we're entering the realm of the sun and a, and a more mystical way of knowing. So the knowledge is less vested in our sensory experiences. You know? um, it, it's rooted in illuminations, something close to the apophatic, the thing we, we don't understand, the illuminations of the mystic. So the kind of knowledge that we're going to get here represents a higher order. We're moving from one order into a world like that of the mystics. I think the church calls it apophatic, a way of knowing by negation. We're turning away from the things we know. And interestingly, Dante's still, still going to be dealing with earthly matters. The body is going to be central to everything that comes in right now. In fact, the body is going to be the central focus of all topics. And yet it's going to be approached from a knowledge that is mystical. So that's one. Two, and I was in the sun no more aware of my ascent than one can be aware of how thought will come before it comes. She, she it is, Beatrice, guides our climb from good to better instantaneously. Her action has no measurement time. They're there. Here's the amazing thing. They're in the sun. They're not being burnt up. They're not being affected by it. Stop and think what that means about the human soul. That what to us would, would fry us in an instant. We couldn't get close to the sun. If we were close to the sun, we'd be burned to a crisp. Remember, Dante's transhumanizing. He has entered a realm, and, and this is what Thomas meant. The human soul, the human individual soul, is worth more than the entire material universe. Because the human soul is immortal, it's um, intangible. It's, it, in some ways, it's not subject to time and place. We're going to see that's the condition of heaven as we get closer and closer to God. But this is pretty amazing. And what's even more amazing, they're in the sun, it's blinding, and like all the other planets, like the moon and Venus uh, and Mercury, the, the, even though they're in the light of a sun, the light of the souls is going to distinguish them from the background light of the sun. Because the human soul is that radiant. He's worth more than, than the material stuff that makes up our universe. Um, so once again, Dante's reminding us, we're in a different realm. We just can't look at it anymore the way we look at most stories. Then Beatrice said, and now give thanks, thanks to the son of angels by whose grace you have ascended to this son of sense. No mortal heart was ever more disposed to do devotion and to yield itself to God so fully and so readily than mine was at her word. So totally did I direct all of my love to him. This is partly an answer marked to you that Beatrice eclipsed had left my mind. But this did not displease her. It's the first time that he's been so overwhelmed by that he turns from her. What's happening is Dante, I don't know how to put this, going beyond his love of Beatrice. I mean, his love to Beatrice will be, remain constant. His love of God is growing. And he's so taken by wonder at what he's experienced, he's entering the sun, and the glory and splendor of it um, overwhelms him for a moment. He, he, remember, um, no more aware of my ascent than one can be of how a thought will come before it comes. Illuminations are there before we know it. We're in a different realm. St. Thomas comes to him, so a circle of lights begin to form around Beatrice and Dante, it's the order of Dominicans. 
because this is the light of the sun. So um, remember it was um, endurance, justice, temperance. The, the natural virtue here in the sun is um, prudence, wisdom. So now we've entered the, the, soul, the sphere that's distinguished by its wisdom. The souls that are here had that propensity for intellectual knowledge. Are, um, are they less per perfect in their love, or more perfect in their love than Picarda at the level of the moon? No, it's a different temperament, and I think, in some sense, a greater glory. The interesting thing, we're gonna go from the sun to Mars, and in Mars we're gonna meet the warriors, one of the questions I always, I don't want to get to it right now, but I'll, but just for you to be, um, why would Dante place warriors above the doctors of the church? Thomas, Augustine. They don't have the intellects, these men. Have, these are what are called the doctors of the church. How, how many times have you ever heard a warrior, Joan of Arc, how many times have you heard a warrior called a doctor of the church? But they're going to be at a higher level. It just don't have, but just hold on to it because we're about to be there. I was one of the sacred flocks of lambs led by St. Dominic along the road where all may fatten if they do not stray. Now hold on to that line. He introduces himself as St. Thomas and he says, I was one led by Dominic along the road where all may fatten if they don't stray. And now he begins to introduce all of the other souls and it's interesting because so many of the souls that make up this garland were opponents of St. Thomas people you would not have thought. It's Dante's way of showing us, even if some of them were non-Christian, and they were, their love of truth was so great, they committed their lives to truth. Here they are. Um, um, look at the burning candle next to him. Um, Wait, the, did, you say, did you say there are people here that are not Christians? Mm -hmm. in right. What about Virgil then? How do, you, how do you get to heaven without going through Jesus? Let me, well, Rahab was not, I mean, wait, wait on that, okay, we're going to come to it. We've, we've been here, that question has been raised a number of times and I keep putting you off. Rahab's not Christian. This is where I wanted to talk about Thomas, about St. Thomas. And this is, it was during, some of you are new here. The old ones know that because of this, I became a student of St. Thomas, and he wishes he had what I had. <laughs> because I agree with Envy, just so you know. I'm going to have to do time on, on purgatory because of this woman. Because, because this is uh, the Summa Theologia by St. Thomas. And those of you who haven't looked at it, this is just book one. There are eight of them, and together they weigh 30 pounds. And I have them all, and he doesn't. <laughs> so Did I'm going to uh, oh put it back on that white chair, so if you, when you leave, if you want to look at it, it has the Italian on one side and English on the other. Is it the Latin, or is it the uh, It's Latin. Yes, it's the Latin. It's the Latin. So let, I'll put that back there, but I wanted to tell you just one tiny bit about St. Thomas. So you'll understand who he was better. Dante lived during the time of Thomas Aquinas, 
Thomas was 2025 to 1274, and Dante was 1265, 1321. They were both Italian. And this comedy was finished in 1314, so Dante was aware and had access to Thomas's work. Listen to this, at 19, Thomas wanted to join the new Dominican order. His family was wealthy, and they had the plans for him. So they put him in prison in the house. They kept him prisoner for one year. And his brothers got a prostitute to tempt him and he chased her away with a firearm. Because <laughs> if he'd done that, he could not go to the Dominican order. So his mother gave up after a year. Her name is Theodora. She let him escape at night so the family would look better than if they openly surrendered to the Dominicans. So there you go. Thank you, Marcy. Thank you. You can, you can tell Marcy loves Thomas. And I don't think I'm exaggerated at all. I mean, Marcy, this was a couple of years ago, and, and, and my first response was in absolute envy. She, she's got these um, volumes, and I've been, but... Is it envy or is it jealousy? <laughs> envy. Envy. I have, to, I have to restrain myself from going back there and setting... No, I'm... <laughs> well, when you're over at the house the other day, when you're over at the house the other day, you could have you could have stolen them. No, I'm joking. Huh? Huh? You, I, I'm so glad. Anyway, this is I'm just having, but I was so pleased and proud of Marcy because she, um, we're not young anymore, and she picked up Thomas series and started reading him at this age. And if you've been, any of you have ever tried to read Thomas, you know it's not easy. It's not easy. I'm older than anyone in here. I'm 85. <laughs> She's not proud either. <laughs> here, let's go. Here, back. Okay. Um, on page 450, the fifth light, the most... Now, this is crucial because this is a frame on the level of the sun. So um, Dante's going to devote a number of cantos to the level of the sun. And this exchange between the Dominicans and the Franciscans, okay? So he's identifying the souls in this garland. Remember, all these lights are dancing. It's a light, it's beautiful, it's radiant, it's lovely. There's a harmony everywhere. The fifth light, the most beautiful of all, breathes from a love so passionate that men still hunger down on earth to know his fate. That's Solomon. And I want you to hold on because we're going to come back because Dante is going to have questions about him. Do you remember what Milton's attitude towards Solomon was? Hmm? Do you remember? He hated him. Absolutely hated him. Because of his thousand, I think because of his thousand wives. Now I want you to hold on to this tip because here's, remember, we've just left the level of the Venus. Solomon had, I think, about a thousand wives. Here he's with the wise, not with the lustful. Even though he had all these wives. Milton hated him. If, if you go back to the Divine, or the Paradis, or Lost Par or Paradise Lost, you'll find an explicit reference to Solomon in his dislike of the man. Okay? Dante puts him here. Obvi he's the most beautiful of all. His flame contains that lofty mind instilled with wisdom so profound if truth speak truth. There never arose a second with such vision. Now hold on to those two lines. Where all may fatten if they do not stray. That's Thomas about the Dominicans. 450. And here, there never arose a second with such vision. 
then introduces Dionysius and then Boethius down below. Wrapped in the vision of all good rejoices the sainted soul who makes most manifest the world's deceit to one who reads him well. There's nothing explicitly condemning of the world in Consolation of Philosophy, but when you read it, you can't read it without realizing this is the good of God's order at work in the world. This is, this is the God who allows injustices, but he makes clear the good that's at work when God does that. So implicitly, he's condemning the world, even though there's no condemnation, I mean, virtually. You'll have to wait to see when we do Boethius. He introduces all of these men um, Bede, Isidore, Sigur, Richard, all of these. Go to um, Canto um, 11. Dante has this question, and St. Thomas is answering it, 454. You're perplexed and want me to explain in simple terms with clear, explicit words on your mind's level what I meant to say when I said earlier, we're all may fatten. Why did he say that about the Dominicans? Dante's puzzled why Thomas would have said that about his own order. And now he describes um, the emergence of these two figures sent by God who were meant to reform the church, to reform the bride for the bridegroom. The providence that governs all the world with wisdom so profound none of his creatures can ever hope to see into its depths in order that the bride of that sweet groom who crying aloud espoused her with his blood might go to her beloved maid more secure within herself, more faithful to her spouse, ordain two noble princes to assist her, the church, her, two princes to assist her on either side, each serving as a guide, like a chariot. One of the two shone with seraphic love, the other through a wisdom, through his wisdom was on earth, a splendor of cherubic radiance. So, St. Francis's love is likened to the seraph, the seraphic order of angels. It's an order of ardor, of love. It's the highest order of love in the angels. Dominic is, is likened to the um, cherubic order, a splendor of cherubic radiance, because his is intellectual. Here we are again, two very different souls. Now she'll speak of only one for praise of one, no matter which is praise of both, for both their labors served a seagull in. Go on over. It describes the, the church in the larger situation, and then born into this world is this, this man, Francis. Only a few years after he had risen did his invigorating powers begin to penetrate the earth with a new strength. While still a youth, he braved his father's wrath because he loved a lady to whom all would now think, we've just left Venus. This is so crucial, okay? We just left Venus. And the, the, the central topic of his discussion right now is the ardor of love. But remember, we're in a higher sphere. We're in the sun. Because love is in all of them. It's present everywhere. While still a youth, he braved his father's wrath because he loved a lady to whom all would bar their door as if to death itself. Francis fell in love with somebody nobody else would. Before the bishop's court at Karampatra, presence of the father, he took this lady as his lawful wife. From day to day he loved her more and more. Bereft of her first spouse, despised, ignored, she waited 1,100 years and more, living without a lover till he came. 
She's been waiting since Christ's death. Think about this. This is 1,100 years before we get this kind of reform. This is how important the Franciscan order was. Living without a lover till he came. Alone, though it was known that she was found with Amicus, secure against the voice which had the power to terrify the world. Alone, though known, was her fierce constancy. That time she climbed the cross to be with Christ while Mary stayed below. Enough of such illusions, he goes on. O unsuspected wealth, O fruitful good, Giles throws his shoes off, then Sylvester too, they love the bride so much they seek the groom. Now remember, if you know the story of St. Francis at all, you know after his military life was over, he had this conversion moment. And if you've not seen the movie Brother, Son, Sister, Moon, yeah. you ought to see it. it. The first time I saw it, I wept. I was at UD as a graduate student there. I didn't even know such things like that existed. Brother, Son, Sister, Moon. It's just a, it's a wonderful Easter movie. It, it's just a brief movie on the life of St. Francis. But after his war efforts, he's, um, he's stricken, and something happens to him in his recovery. He, he, he suddenly changes, and he stands to, here it is. He stands to the world no longer in that subject-object dichotomy. Brother, son, sister, moon. He becomes one with things. The whole universe is expressing God and he loves it. Brother, son, sister, moon. He enters into a relationship with birds and he's not in the modern mind. This is so outside of that. And his father has all this wealth and one of the touching scenes in the movie is he takes all of his clothes off He's, he separates himself from his father and his control over him because he has this wealth and enters into the priesthood life. There's this picture of him walking out, out of the town absolutely naked. He renounces it all. And you know he dedicates his life to Christ. Um, he goes east to get help, doesn't, um, and then... Um, um, St. Thomas makes clear that the woman that Francis loved was poverty. That he embraced poverty because it was his way of entering in more fully to the life of Christ and to be one with um, the groom. The groom. Finding no one, this 457, finding no one ripe for harvest there and blow to waste his labors, he returned to reap a crop in Italian fields. There on bare rock between Arno and Tiber, he took upon himself Christ's holy wounds, and for two years he wore the final suit. He had the stigmata, the wounds of Christ uh, were on him. When it pleased him, who had ordained that soul for such great good to call him to himself, rewarding him on high for lowliness, he to his brothers is to write for heirs, commended his most deeply cherished lady, that they practice poverty, that they give up the world. And in the lap of poverty he chose to die, wanting no other buyer. From there that pristine soul returned to its own realm. Now he's going to tell the, the uh, story of... Um, Boniface is going to come forward and tell the story of um, Dominic. But on 458, Thomas says, But his own flock is growing greedy now for richer food. He's talking about Dominic. And in their hungry search, they stray to alien pastures carelessly. This is what he meant by saying, if they don't wander. So long as Dominicans um, held true to their vows, they wouldn't, remember he said fatten who don't wander? Mm -hmm. 
Um, so long as they remain faithful to their vows, they will be okay. This is the denunciation of the Dominican order because it's become corrupt. It's gotten too worldly. It makes wealth and comfort more important than the commitment to wisdom. Now Boniface is going to step forward on page 461. I'm going to do this quickly. Um, and he describes the dream that Dominic's mother had the day that he, on page 461, the day that he was wed to Christian faith at the baptismal font, when each of them promised the other mutual salvation, a lady who had answered for him there saw in a dream the marvelous rich fruit that he had and all his heirs were to produce. And that he might be known for what he was, a spirit sent from heaven named the child with his possessive, whose alone he was. Dominic means um, um, God's. Um, Dominus Canis means dogs, um, dogs of God, I think. Dominic, he was named, I see him, the husbandman, the one chosen by Christ to help him in the garden of the church. So the whole calling of Francis was towards poverty, to, to, to help to restore the church from its corruptions. The whole charism of Dominic was to preach, to bring wisdom. Um... He identifies himself as, as uh, Dominic. I'm going to just um, quickly go ahead, if you can, um, ahead to um, page 468. So, surrounding Dom, um, Dante and Beatrice now are these two garlands of light. One the Dominican order and one the Franciscan. And both of them are celebrating the other order. It's a way of expressing their, their, their gratitude, their courtesy for the goodness of the order. So there's nothing going on in heaven. Remember, we're in heaven. There's nothing going on in heaven that, do, that doesn't express a perfect charity, a graciousness, a gratitude, a joy. It marks every... There's, there's no sin, no envy, no pride exists here. We're in another realm. So... Thomas answers Dante's first question, what he meant by if they don't stray, they will fatten if they don't stray. It's his critique of the Dominicans, that they have strayed. They're losing touch with their feathers. Then Boniface comes up and tells the story about, or Dominic, I mean, so we've got the stories of Francis and Dominic. But Dante's got this other question, um, 468. So you must have been surprised to hear what I said earlier of our fifth light, that he possessed a wisdom without equal. What I'm going to just briefly come in and stop because we don't have time. Dante asked this question, who in the world could he be talking about? How could Solomon have wisdom without equal in the world? On page 469, um, St. Thomas gives his answer. And I'm not going to go into this except to say this. Adam was created directly by God. So he had a wisdom unequal. Christ was created directly by God. The Son, taken on human form. The Holy Spirit conceived him. Um, and he will make clear that... Um, now think about this. Because Solomon went to God and asked for wisdom. This is in Kings. This is scriptural. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon and dreamed by night. And God said, Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said... Give there an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad, for who is able to judge this 
thy so great a people. And God said unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing, hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast thou asked for riches, nor hast thou asked the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself understanding, discern judgment, because he was a king ruling his people. Because of that, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall arise unto, like unto thee. So, this is scriptural. According to God, he gave Solomon a greater wisdom than anybody before him or anybody after. Dante's making a distinction between Adam, who was directly created, and Christ, but it, with respect to confining the context to all created men, there has never been anybody equal to Solomon in his wisdom. Now this is Dante. Solomon had a thousand wives. Milton hated him, even though scriptural is, he was the wisest. And here we've got him, here we've got him, the most radiant light in the, love, in the, in the, um, the, the, the sphere of the sun. Okay? I want to look at that because, interestingly, we're in the sphere of, of increasing radiance and the subject at issue here is the human body. Okay? Not, not Christ, not Adam, Solomon, and a kind of wisdom given to him that nobody else has. He has this effulgence in the body. Anyway, Dante's going to look at the human body again. It's one of the most disparaged things in the modern world. It's at the center of this. Why? Because God thought enough of it to enter it. So we're entering into real mysteries at the center of our faith here, okay? We're out of time. Do you, can you, do you have a quick question? No, or did I'm, just, you? I'm just thinking it's, it's, a, it's a shame that the, uh, he saw the side of Solomon that he didn't like having that his wives because that is shameful. So he kind of just dismissed everything else because of that. You're talking about Milton? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he shouldn't be one to judge because it's not his thing to judge. Yeah. Except. <laughs> yeah, don't. Um, before we all start, um, all of you have um, a blessed um, Holy Week. Yeah, all of you have a good Holy Week, um, and all of you have a really blessed Easter. Okay, you guys, you guys, be safe in your travels and journeys, and we don't meet the week after Easter. Remember, the week afterwards we will. Okay. We'll we'll finish up the Paradiso in the next couple of weeks afterwards. We don't know where we're meeting. We're meeting here. The room that they're not. We're. I asked Father. We're meeting here. We're not going to be bothered with anything, so we're okay. So we resume on two weeks. Not a bad one. Not a bad one. Not a bad one. Monday after Easter. From done? Yeah. No. It's beautiful. Alright. All right. Okay. Yeah. 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 Yeah.